Part Two, Chapter Three, of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part Two, Chapter Three. The Graylings had driven him home, spent the night, and started back for Ann Arbor the next morning. The night with Derry, he had planned to say so many things, but he said nothing. Derry, tired from driving, and apparently unmoved by the impending separation, slept soundly. Kurt, his arms rigid at his sides, stared at the ceiling with its familiar patternings of lavender shadows, and wished them gone, wished them swallowed up in the blackness he had feared so much as a child. His whole lonely life seemed somehow implicit in those shadows. More than anything else, he wanted Derry's kiss and Derry's promise to remember. But Derry never awakened until Mrs. Gray called them for breakfast. So their parting was simply a clasp of hands and a few conventional words of farewell in the presence of his parents, of Mrs. Grayling, and of Chloe. When the car turned the corner and was out of sight, his mind seemed seized with numbness. He turned and went listlessly in at the kitchen door, lingered uncertainly near the books on the table, and the music scattered about the floor near the piano. All day long the numbness held him. He read by snatches, sprawled on the Davenport, he wrote two highly unsatisfactory letters, he rummaged through the music cabinet and coming upon an album of Chopin nocturnes, played them over from cover to cover in a slipshod way, passively approving their lulling eroticism. The meals with his father and mother were silent and uneventful, and the short evening, with a cribbage game between his father and himself, passed in some unaccountable fashion. Bedtime, his father went first, yawning and switching off the overhead lights, and then his mother, with her expected, and therefore doubly irritating, better come to bed now. He made no answer, but sat still until her footsteps reached the upper hall. He put his magazine down. The house was intimate and pleasant, with only the one lamp at his elbow lighted. He sat still, dumbly thinking that there must be other days like this, days almost without number it seemed now until he could leave in August. He got up from the chair slowly and went to the kitchen. The back door had been left open as the night was warm, and the oblong of soft darkness seemed to call him forth. He unhooked the screen door and stepped quietly out into the night. The sky was full of stars, and the air was pervaded with a softness that came to him as a new experience. Stars were usually so distant so glitteringly, so frighteningly precise and jewel-like. But tonight it was as if a dark veil had been flung across them. They were almost friendly. Now maybe he could think. Think. He needed to do that. There were so many things he did not understand, things that had never seemed so important as now. And they all centered, tangled, about himself and these two who had driven away this morning. Derry and Chloe, Derry and Chloe. 
and he must understand. It was a duty which he dreaded, but paradoxically craved to perform. It was his individually. Neither of the other two could understand. Or, no, that was not fair. Chloe could understand, he trusted, if she knew. But these were things she did not know, must not know, things it was unthinkable that she should know. And he had not forgotten her kiss on his hand. How strange and twisted it all was. There was Chloe with her cool gray eyes, her smooth black hair, and her mind which he felt he knew so well, her mind tempered and adjusted to a spiritual sympathy that was constantly amazing him. Chloe, never wholly happy, always questioning, always seeking, reacting to every thought and suggestion, like himself, never quite certain. Chloe with this mental equipment that he had come to know so well and to prize so highly during the past years, and Chloe with her woman's body that he knew not at all. Then there was her brother, with his gray eyes too, but scornful, his dark hair tangled, his mind alert, objective, as incapable of fine sympathies as of deceit. Derry, with this mental equipment that was as clear and free of subtleties as a lump of polished glass, yet that constantly puzzled and repulsed him by its very concreteness. Derry, with the man-body he knew so well, the cool white skin, the firm chest, the lean belly and strong back, the thick thighs and calves, the wide, blunt-fingered hands. There was a loneliness in Kurt, an emptiness, that throbbed and pulsated in the night. It made him think again of the darkness in which he used to cower. The past few months he had seen growing in him a beginning of understanding. He had read for the first time the new psychology, Brill, Jung, Freud, Ellis, Carpenter. From them he learned that his sin and Derry's was not the unique sport he had believed it to be. There were others, it seemed, at least in Europe there were, of his sort. Plato he re-read with a new interest. The high idealism of the Phaedrus in the Symposium had captured him and engulfed him as a flood. Now that there was a whole summer of inaction ahead, he could begin to formulate into ideas, maybe, the feeling that had been growing in him. He was in love with Derry. He belonged to that strange class of humanity, the singularity of whose position appealed to the romantic in him, at the same time that it overwhelmed him with its pathos. I am the love that dare not speak its name, he read. He divided his time between his music and a stumbling search for knowledge. There was in him a yearning for the vicarious companionship of others like himself. Of an actual companionship other than Derry's he never dreamed. It was as if he had been initiated into some secret fraternity, and at every discovery of some new communicant in ages past he felt a thrill of pleasure. There was Plato, beyond a doubt. There was Cellini and Michelangelo and Shakespeare, and there was, he felt most certain, Shelley. Night after night, while his mother lay awake waiting nervously for his return, he fought with himself alone on the quiet streets, 
under the stars or the hiss of summer rain, a walker by night. The struggle went on wearyingly, everlastingly, with small promise of victory on either side. The secrecy of his position maddened him, and yet it was also a sweet madness. I am the love that dare not speak its name. Shame, name, shame. The words were an insinuating counterpoint to his feet. The exultation of his love sent him running, sometimes, along the grass-grown roads at the edge of the village, his arms raised to the sky, his face thirsting for the stars. Nothing so rich, so filling, so troubling, so goading could be evil. The world might say what it chose. He is my lover. He is my lover. He longed to shout it from the rooftops. Behold, world, my lover! He wept in the grass by the roadside for the blindness, the unfeeling stupidity, the unfairness of the world. He hated them all, the scoffers, the leaden-eyed. He throbbed with the music of rebellion and youth. He clutched his fingers in the cool, dark sod and exhausted himself with weeping. And then, always, his feet took him back through other dark streets to his own house, his own familiar room. What could he do? I, a stranger, and afraid, in a world I never made. Some day he swore to himself he would be brave. Now he could not. He would go wearily to bed, angry at the cough his mother gave to inform him that she was not yet asleep, that he had kept her awake with worry. What he knew, what she knew, the chasm appalled him. Could it ever be bridged, he wondered. His philosophy developed slowly, too slowly, and he was only too conscious of the great gaps in his new creed. It came to be, as days and weeks went by, a new religion. The old, by now, was an outgrown shell. Here was a love which the world, had it known, would have denounced as shame, a love whose altar-fires must always burn in secret, whose priesthood walked alone discovering only now and again, and then by chance, some other follower of the faith. He knew that he felt it to be beautiful and worthy of praise, but he knew, too, that he must endure always the martyrdom of silence. No boasting of his love, his first love, no word of it dared he breathe. Always, always, it seemed to him, life demanded secrecy and silence. He had longed for Derry to know, as he knew. Derry must know. And yet he felt certain that Derry could never be made to understand. They hardly spoke the same language, he now realized. There was no way of making him see so high and perfect an ideal. Derry's letters through the summer had been brief things, full of laughing episodes, of their summer life in Ann Arbor, of Chloe's approaching marriage, of a new friend, David Perrier, with a casual, wish you were here, which Kurt fastened on avidly, cherishing and remembering. The new friend caused him some uneasiness. He was afraid he detected in the letters some hint that David was taking his place. He knew David as a clever student in architecture, whose hair, fellow said, was marcelled, and whose nails were always too gleamingly manicured 
and whose eyes he had always found disturbing. He was not the sort you would ever call Dave. He was David. That Derry should allow this outsider a place was unthinkable, and yet he feared it might be so. He tried as best he could to fit David into this new scheme of things. He too, perhaps, was of the fellowship. Yet something in him rebelled at the idea. The ideal was too fine, too high. David, he felt, was too satisfied, too shallow, to deserve this new and awesome calling. There was no niche for him. The thought that Derry, incomprehensible Derry, had taken him in was sickening. He wrote a letter to Derry and never mailed it. What he secretly feared was that this newcomer, this interloper, would say, I love you, before he, Kurt, had said it, in the way he felt he could now say it. Love to him was so indubitably the love of one for another. There could be only two. For him, he knew there could be only Derry. That for Derry there might be David, or others, seemed incredible, frightful, yet he was increasingly certain that it was so. He did send a letter at last. It was a halting thing, he felt, but his fear that Derry would not understand made the formulation of his faith nervous and worried. He waited anxiously for a reply. It did not come. A week passed. His mind ran in circles in a lonely place, always coming back to the point from which it started. At last, only a week before Chloe's wedding, he wrote again. Dear Derry, the you I am writing to, I'm afraid, doesn't exist. I may be wrong in thinking so, and in that hope I write. There has been no reply to my letter of a week ago. You would accuse me of being fantastic, possibly even sentimental, when I say that the silence of these days has hurt me deeply. You are busy, I know, but there are always minutes when a few words can be written, even during the busiest days. Neither have I heard from Chloe, but that does not trouble me. Why? Because I like you better, for one reason, and still more, because I am less sure of your feeling for me, and it is that constant uncertainty that makes me so unhappy. You are a strangely objective person, intolerant of emotion, yet full of it, and incapable, I have sometimes thought, of real sympathetic feeling. In addition, you are more masculine than I. I am in many ways your exact opposite. My richest life always comes from the realm of thought and feeling, rather than from the things outside, color, sound, motion, the theatrical in life. There is a great deal of the feminine in me. If you will consider our friendship in its full course, from the time I first met you, you will realize that it has been I always who have been the submissive one you, the aggressive one. I have not once, that I can remember, failed to submit to your will and desire, and I can recall a great many times when you have received my rather timid overtures coldly. As the years have gone on, the tie between us, so far as I am concerned, has grown stronger and stronger. I have come to hope, and almost believe sometimes, that there was between us a friendship based not solely on physical attraction, but on the spiritual thing men call love. I love you, then. 
that is to put it most simply. It is the fact that this simple statement, meaning so much to me, would make you uncomfortable that troubles me. Are you so conventionally minded? Can your objective mind not see the beauty of such a relationship? I keep hoping that you feel as I do, and I am continually disappointed. An instance, the night of your brief visit here in June, there was on your part a withdrawal into yourself that was almost sullen. It was the last time we would be together for months. If you had put your hand in mine, or your head against my shoulder, I should have been content and happy. But you did not sense my need, you failed. It has been so, so many times. To you, what does our relation mean? I've tried to understand. What do you really feel towards me? You admire me. You think me good-looking and clever, perhaps. You like me a great deal. But if I should cease to exist, would it matter so much to you? Would there not be others? For me, there could be none. I am waiting now, waiting for our meeting next week. Do not fail me, then. It would be harder than you can imagine for me to go away, so far away this time, if you should. My love, Kurt. He read his letter over. It seemed a little dramatic, a little oratorical, yet it must be sent. He dropped it into the slot at the post office and returned home to busy himself with sorting books and music and a dozen going-away details. Marking time, he thought. The fact that Chloe, too, must be left behind was almost forgotten in the fear that he would lose his place in Derry's life. End of Part 2, Chapter 3